Today we're going to be talking about street art and graffiti, which I know a lot about. I've, uh, since I was 13, been painting that sort of stuff and I'm traveling all around the world, always doing things like that and really heavily involved in the scene here as well. Like, um, you know, today we'll be speaking about uh, kind of all the different styles of graffiti, all the history about all of it, uh, where it comes from, uh, how street art interacts with graffiti and how street art kind of came into play, kind of the differences between the two. Uh, what both of them bring to a city and what both of them uh, bring in good and bad ways to a city. Uh, a bit of political stuff here and there. Hi, my name is Matt Fitzgibbon. I'm a rising senior at Colorado College. I'm a film major and I'm from Chicago. This podcast is for the feminist and gender studies course, Hidden Spaces and Hidden Narratives, Intersectionality Studies in Berlin, taught by the wonderful Dr. Heidi Lewis. This class is framed around hearing about and discussing the many untold stories of marginalized groups that have lived in Berlin. We are here to learn about how Germans and the German government have oppressed these groups, but also how they have resisted and built community. Today's podcast is specifically about the street art and graffiti walking tour that our class went on Friday, June 21st. This tour relates to our course because street art and graffiti, especially in Berlin, represents the many social dynamics that exist in the city. These art forms represent a form of creative expression that, though mostly illegal, directly reflect the firmly held opinions of the citizens in these neighborhoods. Most of the street art that we saw during the tour showed us how the artists creatively expressed their views and try to resist issues of gentrification, the rise of capitalism since the fall of the wall, the change of graffiti culture in the city, and more. I'm personally very interested in and excited to talk about the free aspect of street art in regards to the freedom of expression and lack of financial gain most artists receive for their work. I'm also excited to talk about the legacy of the wall and its influence in today's street art and graffiti scene. And lastly, how street art and graffiti work as a tool for resistance in an urbanized landscape. first memorable moment I would like to bring up was the large masterpiece our tour guide Declan showed our class. We started our tour in a former train yard turned creative and musical hub in Frederickshine. Now the warehouses holds art studios, a skate park, music venues, galleries, and more. This area is packed to the brim with creative spaces and reflecting this is the walls of all the buildings. Every wall, nook, and cranny is covered in art ranging from small tags to large installations and graffiti masterpieces. My first memorable moment came after Declan explained the main types of graffiti, which are tags, throw-ups, burners, and masterpieces. As he pointed and explained the many examples that surrounded us, he eventually pointed us towards the approximately 50-foot-long, largely purple swirl of spray paint that truly defined the word masterpiece. This swirl of characters, embellishment, or fruit and dynamic lettering was truly one of the most complex pieces of graffiti I have ever seen. This one is the highest stage and it's called a production. In America you call it a masterpiece. Uh, now production is where you have you know, your friends come together or you know, some members of your crew. You all decide on a color theme and you decide on um, a theme of what's going on in the picture. And usually there'll be the name of the crew in the middle or... The so uh, you can see the background's all been done with purple roller paint. Mm. Now, the two guys that did this weren't allowed to do it. They've come to Berlin, they've thought, oh, you can paint here, look around, there's graffiti everywhere. But if you get caught painting here in the middle of the day, you're going to be charged as if you're doing it outside. 
nothing in here uh, is privately owned by these people that are renting. Everything is owned by two companies. The north by one and the south by another. So you have to ask permission through them. And they're never going to write back to your email. So if you want to come down in, uh, in night and the cops are ro rocking around here because there's dealers here and shit like that, you're probably going to get busted. But if you come down in the middle of the day, bring a stereo with you, lunchbox, uh, a fluoro vest, and look like you're allowed to be there and you're painting something like this, no one is going to say anything because they, they assume you are allowed to do it. Uh -huh. Being hidden in plain sight is sometimes the best way to paint anything. You know, you want to go to the uh, hardware store and get pretty much identical uniform to the train yard workers. So you can walk into the train yard with your friends wearing the fluoro shit and paint a train in the middle of the day. So much better than doing it in the middle of the night, you know? So it's a lot of, uh, a lot of people use those sort of techniques. This moment really contributed to my learning of street art and graffiti as it expanded my view of the true creativity and boldness that graffiti artists have. It's clear that graffiti artists are willing to risk personal safety and freedom by doing their art just by seeing where their pieces are often placed. This shows the risk that they must partake in, often climbing high buildings or sneaking into train yards. They also risk their personal freedom just by committing an illegal act. To paint the picture of risk involved for this example, this train yard, as I have said before, has many businesses in the area packed right on top of each other. Though this is an area of warehouses, the amount of businesses here make it so there is not much privacy, and there are a lot of people walking around all the time that makes most of the art done here easily noticed. Also, since there is a lot of permission work done here, the owners and workers around here sound likely to know when something is going to get painted and then when something is not supposed to be painted. This piece, unlike other graffiti art, was done openly, with no intention to hide. The artist just dressed in similar work outfits, marked off the area, and with total confidence acted like they should be there. All graffiti and street artists risk going to jail for their art, but few do so in a way that overtly risks their freedom. Instead of trying to paint covertly, these artists convinced everyone that they had permission to paint this enormous masterpiece just by dressing the same and acting with confidence. Finding creative ways to subvert the legality of this form of expression is what I love so much about graffiti, as there are no other forms of art that operate in such a unique way. This moment changed the way I now think about graffiti, as even though in many places in Berlin there are permission pieces and murals, you, you cannot always tell which was permission and what was not. One might assume that the big walls, covered in very intricate pieces, are permissioned, while the, the smaller, quicker throws are not permissioned, but after this experience, you cannot really tell what is legal and what is not. Judging by the surroundings of this former train yard in particular, since it is covered in large, intricate, and often legal pieces, I don't believe that any of us would have assumed that this masterpiece was done with permission. This fake permission wall totally blurs the line between what some might think graffiti and street art traditionally look like. Declan explained to us his definition of the difference between street art and graffiti, and to him it seemed more of a matter of intention rather than style. Before this tour, I mostly thought of the difference between the two as one of style. Something like this piece to me looked far too intricate, planned out, and placed in too busy an area to be illegally done graffiti, which would have made me think of this piece as a piece of street art. But after this conversation and hearing the story of the creation of this masterpiece, 
I have now realized that aesthetics do not mean that one piece is street art and another is graffiti, as this piece was just as intricate as other pieces of legal and illegal street art we saw on this tour. I now realize that graffiti takes many aesthetic forms, and its aesthetic form does not always indicate its legality. The second memorable moment I had happened just after we left the train yard and Declan started telling us about wheat pastes or paste-ups. The first piece he told us about was from the artist El Bacho. This piece was rather old for a paste-up as it had been up for almost five years. It depicted a woman with long pink hair wearing a green cap. El Bacho is the name of the artist. He's quite a famous street artist in Berlin because he was one of the first paste-up artists that Berlin had ever seen, starting in about 2001. So this one here of the girl with the green hat um, is also a bit of a, a thing about the artist speaking out about you know some of the neighbourhoods changing, uh, more money coming in, rents going up, uh, the old neighbourhoods slowly vanishing over time. But what it says on the top, Liebe in Beton Facaden is you know <laughs> love for a concrete facade, or I would rather a concrete facade, which pretty much means stop renovating. A lot of these girls that he put up around the city were all different girls different skin colour, different hair colours, they had different clothes, but they all had a slogan on their body somewhere, sort of suggesting that they were upset about the city changing. And if you look, she's, they were always on old walls that were surrounded by uh, you know, gentrifying neighbourhoods, because the idea is she's on the wall, looking out to the street, and over the years, watching the city change over time. And you can see the tears running down her face. Now, this is a myth, I don't know if it's true or not, uh, I just heard this, I have never confirmed it, but apparently when he puts them on the wall, under the eyes he paints layers and layers and layers of uh, some sort of paint that can slime up and be wet again with the rain. And when the rain hits them, it makes the paint drip and she will start to cry by herself. You know, so as she watches the city change more and more, she cries more and more until finally one day she looks like uh, just an old piece of paper that flakes away. And this is another point of the story that's been floating around that I don't really know is true, but it's probably someone's interpretation. At that point, after, say, 10 years of her watching the city change, she finally fades away. She moulds herself into the wall and becomes a part of the city herself and is therefore reconnected with the city that she once loved because she's on the old wall as, as it stays. This piece to me was memorable for multiple reasons. Those being the technical creativity of the ink used in the piece, the amount of time this piece has been on the wall, and the social critique that it offers. Starting with the critique, like many cities around the world, Berlin faces gentrification. Both the former east and west sides of Berlin have been changing rapidly over the last decade or two. Spaces like this former train yard in Frederikshain have also greatly changed since World War II. First, this space was used as a train yard for the war effort. After the wall fell, the area was nearly free living for people who wanted it, as hardly anyone wanted to live there. Then, artists eventually moved in, and now it's getting too expensive to house those that originally fixed up the area. This art reflects that sadness because just as these posters are all around the city, so is the problem of gentrification. As noted in the more technical aspect of the piece, these girls on the poster cry when it rains due to the type of paint that some might assume he uses. It's a literal crying shame that the area, as well as the entirety of the city, is changing so that artists or whoever once lived in that part of the city can't live or create where they once did. This crying poster was such a creative way for the artist to have had his art interact with his environment. 
As the posters depict a woman's face, the poster is truly brought to life when it rains, when it makes her hair, shirt, and face covered in tears. This effect, though beautiful and unique, is certainly sad. As Declan said, given the age of this piece, the metaphorical sadness compounds knowing that this piece has been up for many years and the landscape only continues to change. Gentrification has been happening and will continue to happen. With that, the girls in the poster will continue to cry for their changing city. This sort of passivity is also what made this piece stick in my head. Other forms of resistance we have seen from groups that we have met with over this trip are former active. Groups we have met with actively work to counter dominant and oppressive narratives and support their own communities. This form of art acts more as a form of acknowledgement. It is not a call to action to stop gentrification. It seems just to evoke emotion in an attentive passerby. This form of art seems to occupy a unique space in the resistance category, as it is not attempting to get people to change, but just to acknowledge that change has occurred. One would hope this piece would get someone to want to create change, but it does not seem to be the artist's intention. So my discussants for today's podcast, on my left I have Avia Haley, who's from Binghamton, New York. She's a rising sophomore, an environmental science major, and an FGS and education minor. And on my right, I have Lauren Huff, who's from Bend, Oregon. She's a rising sophomore and currently undeclared. My first question for our discussion is about the free aspect of street art and graffiti. How does the free aspect of street art and graffiti influence either its audience or the art itself? What importance lies in the freeness of this art form? question and the first place my mind goes to is actually when he was talking a lot about um, today how graffiti artists themselves put in a lot of time money and effort and they don't really get anything back so like you're paying for like all the you know spray paint yourself and the caps and the different stencils and all those things to make these beautiful pieces of art and you're kind of putting yourself on the line to do something beautiful to give back to the community a little bit and I think that's interesting because like most of the times you never get a payback on that. Um, when it comes to street art, it's really interesting because it could be divided into two specters because there's those people who do it you know, for the community and there's others who are commissioned. So there's a little bit of controversy on that, on like who are the real artists. So I think that's interesting looking at that conflict and like what sets you apart is it like kind of like the word free but nothing in life is actually free so i just been pondering on that yeah i i like just want to emphasize kind of the first point that avia made about like street art being for the community and i think at one point declan also said like people create this art and like go so out of their way to create it in a public space not just for the community but also because of their love for it and I think that that's like an interesting part of the graffiti and street art scene in general. It's just like a very passionate form of art because of the risk involved. Yeah, that's what I think. It's not like other forms of art where it seem it seems much more dedicated to me. If you're gonna, you're not really gonna casually go 
risk going to jail or your safety to engage in in this form of art like if you really want it you know that you're not going to make money and it is just for you and if you love it that much you'll do it it seems like way more of a passionate form like y'all said than mm -hmm. than other forms yeah i also think another like aspect of it being free is another thing that like he mentioned on the tour which was like you, we need to keep this art form illegal, or else it can it has the potential to be lost to like commercialization, which like also connects to sort of some projects he was talking about, like some of the bigger street art murals. But just I guess like it was interesting to hear someone in the scene, someone who's like actually been detained for like doing graffiti and like who I'm sure has had friends who have like had negative experiences with like the laws because of their art and it's just like interesting to hear someone be like no but we have to keep it illegal yeah also something that lauren just said sparked something in my head um when you first said the word free i was thinking a lot of like money and you were talking a little bit about like capitalism but it also struck me as kind of like free as in like freedom of expression i feel like a lot of times with their art pieces they're kind of making a statement that is kind of like going against the norm or the mainstream. I was just thinking mostly about the arms article and thinking of like the artist tower and how he was kind of making this commentary on like society and just like what was going wrong in the city and like say if this was commissioned art or if you know he was getting paid to do this by someone, he wouldn't necessarily have that freedom to you know say what's on his mind. Like mm -hmm. when they're out in the streets, they're not necessarily pushing an agenda. They're just kind of like documenting what they see happening to their community. And I think that's very cool to be able to tell that story without you know borders or limits. Yeah, there is no money involved. You're not going, you're not restricted by if you have to sell to a gallerist or like if you're in a museum, you're not restricted by needing to make money off that. If you're not pleasing your audience or your your funders, like it's only for them. I feel like almost in a way it seemed like the only like we're talking about like freedom of expression, freedom of like placement of your art and stuff. It was really interesting that it seemed like the only real restrictions that like graffiti artists actually adhere to are ones within their community. You know, they're like you don't tag on someone else's throw up or whatever because like you want to preserve the the art that the, that the most time was put into and like the most effort and stuff and then I just thought it was interesting that yeah the only restrictions are like from the community yeah when there's only when there is no money involved it seems like respect is the the currency like mm -hmm. if you respect everybody else's space then everybody can end up painting more it seems mm -hmm. like especially talking about painting um, subway trains mm -hmm. like you know you respect this crew's ability to just stay in this in this yeah. train yard and because if you don't then you can just mess it up for everybody and bring too much security to that spot it seems the rules are more set up to allow for more art than less mm -hmm. yeah definitely would agree with so then the free aspect of art, this sort of acts as a bit of a segue to the next question, which is about the wall. How does it seem that the fall of the wall may have influenced street art, especially in terms of street art reflecting the country's changing economic system, the war political climate? 
think that question is very interesting because I remember in one of the readings it was talking at first like the very beginning when the fall was a wall a lot of like free creativity and freedom and like fun kind of came from that like artists were just like expressing themselves by whatever means and like getting used to like the technique and the new community and different things in that aspect and I feel like as time has progressed and like as you said society or that new community was developing it definitely started to become a little more intense a little more political and social yeah I guess the other part of like the wall that like connects sort of to what we were just talking about with freedom in terms of freedom of expression is that um I think graffiti can sort of be viewed as a form of political resistance or cultural or societal resistance. And like when we when I was first like kind of brainstorming like what types of graffiti specifically like politically resist, it was like, oh, like big street art murals and things that like really make a statement, not just like tagging and like throw-ups. But in terms of just looking in terms of like East Berlin and having like so little freedom of expression before the wall fell, um, tagging itself can totally be viewed as like a, as a form of expression, as a form of political resistance. And I think over time there's been like a cool evolution versus like when the wall first came down versus like today, one really cool artist we got to look at was Blue and he has a bunch of like politically charged pieces. The one I think about, you know, specifically in reference to the wall is the mural he did on the building about the wall where it starts in fascism, then it crumbles down, that's the fall of the wall, and then it gets built back up in with like euros and it represents capitalism so he's obviously kind of like taking a strong stance where we had like one master then we were free and we kind of got hooked into another so i think that's interesting of like these artists have been here the whole time and they've just been observing this and kind of in their own way critiquing society through their art and also, I think it's kind of showing like a full circle around and critiquing that, whereas like you don't want to go back. Like we already had it this bad, then we had this freedom. Like, why are we rebuilding this wall again now? Yeah, and he, I guess he keeps like commenting on, making comments about that, the the change to capitalism with, with the piece that was like the two dudes with the masks on hanging down with one with the hand showing the east and one with the west and they look the same or in the same clothes and then next to it someone in a suit with two gold watches and then a chain between it sort of showing being chained to capitalism yeah. i guess mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then the irony of that existing in the in the garden of the mercedes-benz yeah. uh, new headquarters or museum even putting up really politically charged work in like a political zone i mean like near the former wall and now it's just being appropriated by you know who blue is trying to critique is sort of a double a double fuck you i don't know and that just whole scenario is crazy the fact that he was like commenting on like this capitalistic like society and this company and then they tried to use it to capitalize and like how he had to come back and destroy that and what that says like being willing to even destroy your own art because um kind of what the tour guy was saying like one of like 
the hardest, like, or harshest penalties that someone can do is, like, make you destroy your own work. And that's when someone else is doing it. But I feel like that had to take a lot, like, personally and emotionally to just, like, destroy your own artwork and kind of, like, weighing, like, what's the greater good. Like, he didn't want his art to go to those people. So I think that in itself says a lot, as well as the middle fingers and, like, the Berlin kiss. That was also a really cool part of the story. I feel that... That also connects to, like, the first question about freedom, though, because in, like, a lot of art forms or just, like, commissioned stuff, I guess, um, or, like, more commercialized forms of art, like, you don't have the freedom to choose when you don't want your art to exist anymore because it's not being interpreted in or, like, appreciated or utilized, like, in the correct way. Like, for the, in the example of like the Mercedes-Benz garden and so I think that while yes there's like a big emotional probably toll on having to like destroy your own artwork it's also just like a further expression of freedom in the art form of just being like well f you I'm just gonna cover it up now because you guys don't get why it's here and yeah and also just like making a statement that it's not like it's not for like a specific group of people I guess because um, I think a lot of times, like, commissioned art is for, like, the upper class or for, like, specific, like, businesses or places that can, like, afford to have big murals or to have just art in general. Yeah, that seems like the legacy of, of street art or graffiti to me. Like, it's a legacy of people speaking against the government and art for the people and not for corporations or the government. It's really a reflection. It's a fairly accurate depiction of what people think. It's really direct, you know, voice to the audience. It's not mitigated by anyone or anything. And it, it does come with, since it is free and not on their own property, you know, Mercedes can just appropriate I guess or keep the art in a way that the artist wouldn't want it to be shown but then yeah they do still have the power to to erase themselves yeah and I think that also sort of like transitions into a different like aspect um of the what the graffiti art the graffiti art scene in Berlin at least seems to be like focusing on which is which is not so much like a struggle between the government necessarily or like the state and the individual artists but between corporations um, and the individual artist and like the effects that corporations have on gentrification in the city on the environment on like the economy and all of these like issues that just affect all of all of the people in Berlin and in the world like so intensely um, which I was kind of surprised by, honestly. I guess I, I just assumed that like graffiti art was just like a, a way of opposing like the police or opposing like the laws that a government has created, but it seems more to be um, opposing, yeah, the, the like actions of corporations. Yeah, and real estate agents and climate change and everything. I mean, 
And then I also think it's also interesting that sometimes it has nothing to do with it. Like just thinking about how it even originated with like Philadelphia and New York and how it was mostly used by like specific groups or sometimes gangs. It's just simply like marking territory if you go even further back and you think about like caveman drawings and it was just used as a way to like always been a way to like tell our story and kind of commemorate and remember something in a very specific way. I think that's also interesting that sometimes it can be super political and other times it's something as simple as like want to feel more part of your community so you put your name on you know the wall so I just think it's so interesting all the multiple facets that it can fall into. I know we have talked about this this question a little bit but what I wanted to bring up as my last question was how does street art and or graffiti work as a tool for resistance against an artist's changing surroundings? Well, something you were talking about a little bit earlier specifically is like gentrification. And I was, um, I forget the artist's exact name. Is it like Bacho or El Bacho? El Bacho, yeah. Yeah, El Bacho. And like specifically his commentary where he was like putting up all the different um, posters of like these girls watching and commenting on gentrification. And while it might not have you know, completely stopped it or perhaps even slowed it down, it put it in the conscience of the people and community and it wasn't going to happen without, you know, these people having a say. Like, it was very much so in the full for and you know that it's affecting the people there. And I feel like the first part is, like, planting a seed in the minds. And once that gets going, you know, you can have movements, you can have action being taken. But first, you know, you have to realize and say what's going wrong and then speak out for it. And I feel like the momentum can really pick up after that. Mm-hmm. And just on, like, a really basic level like you can just look at the history of how graffiti started basically as like we talked about this before too but just like reiterating how it's really like a a tool for self-empowerment um in one's own community and like making like Avi was talking about like someone might someone's able to like really put their name out there or identify and express themselves and then I think like from that it's grown into this more like big like political sort of statement about community or about like a city that you live in or about like anything but like it's it's cool that the roots started in like self-expression and then have like merged maybe more with like a, a larger political um like narrative yeah it seems like that at least from like the tour and to me i was thinking sort of about street art or graffiti as like a record of a neighborhood like seeing how it's changed especially keeping track of the pieces that have been up for a while like the the El Bacho piece we saw that piece was at least five years old and it was talking about gentrification and so we know that gentrification has started at least five years ago likely much earlier than that but Mm -hmm. looking at this we can see when people are starting to notice a change and that how that made this artist feel like if the girl depicted is you know crying then obviously sad things are happening people are being pushed out or rents going up so this resistance seems more we can note it we as the audience can note it more as like a record of of change especially with longer lasting pieces Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
it's a cool way to think of a historical record because I know a lot of times on this trip we were going to like archives and museums but to actually see like the history on the streets and the walls you walk on I think that's cool and definitely for me it was another way for me to just connect with Berlin in a whole nother way even from like an outsider perspective it just felt very very real which I appreciated yeah it's not like and another probably going back to the free aspect of this art it's it's like it can be just so instant you don't have to go through a gallery or a museum to show this art like it's as quick as you want to like doing a tag for five seconds or working on these wheat pastes or the clocks oh it's just like instant like you know even though it won't last forever like something might only last three days or one day but then some things can last like years so it's not the perfect record but it's way more way more alive and way more personable mm-hmm. than some historical archive yeah or more accessible to like the people who the art's for so and just in a way like more accessible as like a form of activism or like yeah resistance um like i was just thinking about how in a lot of like the social movements that we've discussed on like this entire during this class like we've talked a lot about how like like for example like in Kreuzberg like those squatter movements and like political movements there were um successful because they were able to have people like become really united and band together like same with like um we like learned about a similar movement on the Jewish walking tour like there's so many examples of like when the people all unite, then, like, change comes. But I think, like, in the graffiti scene, it's, like, not necessarily united at all, yet people still have the power to, like, enact change or at least just get people to, like, think about things, um, which makes it, like, really unique, I guess. Mm-hmm.